is good to have you with us. I am Peter Milanowski, clinical psychologist, and this is Interior Integration for Catholics. It's part of our online outreach at soulsandhearts.com. This is episode 64, and it is released on April 19th, 2021. The title, Subtle Ways Catholics Cheat on Their Spouses. How and Why? We're getting into the natural level issues that undermine our commitment to our spouses, that undermine and sabotage the covenant between a Catholic husband and a Catholic wife. What gets in there harms and can even ruin a Catholic sacramental marriage. So before we get into that, let's just do a brief review. This is part of a larger series on Catholic married sexuality, and I'm using this metaphor of a Catholic canopied marriage bed to illustrate how all these natural level phenomena work together. So just to recap that very briefly, there's a rock solid floor in the bedroom. That is the foundation. That is the presence of God. That's an active belief in God's providence, a childlike trust and absolute confidence in God's goodness, his benevolence, his love for us. This reflects the reality of our existential dependence on God's paternal care and Mary's maternal care for us. And it is grounded in the truth. God actually indeed loves us. That's the foundation. Then there's four legs. We're moving into the natural realm now. The first leg is the husband's commitment to his interior integration, his own human formation, his psychological health, his emotional well-being, removing the beam from his own eye. We talked about this in last episode, episode 63. That was all about human formation. And similarly, second leg, the wife's commitment to her own interior integration, her human formation, her well-being, her taking on personal responsibility for her human formation in her natural life. Again, all about that in episode 63, the last episode. What is human formation again? Let's just review it. Human formation is the lifelong process of natural development aided by grace by which a person integrates all aspects of his interior emotional, cognitive, relational, and bodily life. All of his natural faculties in an ordered way conformed with right reason and natural law, so that he is freed from natural impediments to trusting God as his beloved child and to embracing God's love. And then in return, because he possesses himself, he can give himself to God. He can love God, neighbor, and himself with all of his natural being in an ordered, intimate, personal, and mature way. That's what we're talking about with human formation. That's what Souls and Hearts is all about, our online outreach. That is what this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is all about. That's what we're focused on in this podcast. We're looking to bring together all the parts of ourselves into unity and harmony with God. So we're on this journey towards this deep transformation, a radical conversion at the core of our being, so that our souls can one day enter into contemplative union with God, right? That's what that's about. So human formation, that's legs one and two, husband and wife. Then the third leg, attachment needs and integrity needs, understanding those and going about meeting those in a good way. That was all covered in episode 62. And then the fourth leg was all about internal family systems approaches, understanding Understanding deeply how the human person is both a unity and a multiplicity. Like an orchestra is one, but it's also many, right? It's one orchestra, but there are many musicians and a conductor in that orchestra. Check out episodes 60 and 61 for more details about that. Now we're moving on. We're above those four legs and we are talking about the frame and the box spring. The frame holds the whole bed together, and it represents the firm commitment between the husband and the wife, the upholding of the marriage vows in the marital covenant. That's what we're focusing on today, the commitment, the vows of Catholic married life, and what gets in the way of those vows on the natural level. Then on top of that, the mattress, that's empathetic attunement, really knowing your spouse and being able to enter into the phenomenological world of your spouse. 
The bottom sheet or the fitted sheet, that's the sexual attraction, the intensity of sexual passion. And it hinges on everything that goes beneath it. That sexual passion needs to be supported by everything that's beneath it. The top sheet is the communication between the Catholic spouses. The pillows are the acceptance of the husband and the wife, both self-acceptance and spouse acceptance. The blankets are the human warmth and the emotional connection. We've got four bedposts spiraling up, intertwined like a double helix for mindset, heart set, body set, and soul set of both the husband and the wife. And then we've got the canopy and the curtains. They cover the bed. They provide privacy. That could be for good or it could be for ill. And then the shams, the bedspread, and the bed skirts that cover up the bed that can give this favorable impression, maybe even a false impression to the world of what the bed is like and keep the real bed under wraps, as it were. Okay, so let's start out by taking a look at where we are with the marriage commitment. The commitment is essential. The frame and the box spring of the bed. The frame holds the whole structure of the bed together, the four legs and the bed posts, and the commitment to loving the other person in the sacramental marriage covenant is vitally important. This cannot be understated. And no one else can do it for you. No one else can do it for the husband. No one else can do it for the wife. Not even God. No one can take your place and do this for you. All right, so let's just go back and let's do some basic definitions so that we understand what we're talking about here. What is marriage? So it's definition time with Dr. Peter. All right, I'm going to take this from Father John Harden in the Modern Catholic Dictionary. And he writes as follows. Marriage as a natural institution is the lasting union of a man and woman who agree to give and receive rights over each other for the performance of the act of generation and for the fostering of their mutual love. He goes on to say, the state of marriage implies four chief conditions. There must be a union of opposite sexes. He means one man and one woman, not two men, not two women, not two men and a woman. No, one man and one woman. That's what Father John Harden's talking about here. It's a permanent union until the death of either spouse. Once you're married, you are married for life. It doesn't matter what the civil government says. It doesn't matter what the state of Indiana says. It doesn't matter what your nation says. It doesn't matter what the civil authorities have to say about this. Sacramentally, if you are married in the Catholic Church, that lasts until death. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2382, between baptized persons, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death. This goes back and quotes the Code of Canon Law, paragraph 1141. It is until death. And we see that in the vows, right? I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. All the days of my life. No wiggle room here. No exceptions. No way to undo a valid sacramental marriage. Father Hardin goes on. It is an exclusive union so that extramarital acts are a violation of justice. If you marry, you owe things to your spouse. You owe your spouse the fidelity which you vowed to that spouse. Those vows carry with it this immense obligation. It's an exclusive union. And to violate that union is against justice. So the fourth thing that Father Hardin tells us, that the permanence and exclusiveness of marriage are guaranteed by contract. Mere living together without mutually binding themselves to do so is concubinage and not marriage. So he doesn't mince any words there, right? There has to be the form. There has to be the contract. He goes on to say that Christ elevated marriage to a sacrament of the new law. Christian spouses signify and partake of the mystery of that unity and fruitful love which exists between Christ and his church, helping each other attain to holiness in their married life and in the rearing and education of their children. So now Catholic sacramental marriage partakes of the mystery of unity and fruitful love between Christ and his church. That's what it's signifying. That's what it's representing. That's what it's taking part in, in a very real way. 
So marriages are solemnified by formal vows. And it's usually the only vow a Christian layman or a laywoman will ever make in his or her life. This is from the Catechism 2364. Both spouses give themselves definitively and totally to one another. They are no longer two, but from now on they form one flesh. The covenant they freely contracted imposes on the spouses the obligation to preserve it as unique and indissoluble. It cannot be broken by any human power. So our commitment originates in our will. It's not about feelings. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. Love is an act of the will. And it's all the days of my life, not just a one-time event, all the days of my life. It's an ongoing willing, year to year, week to week, day to day, moment to moment. Our human formation and our spiritual formation impact the degree to which we can carry out this awesome command to love our spouses with our whole selves. We can be supported in the natural realm by good human formation, by an awareness of our attachment needs and our integrity needs, an awareness of our spouse's attachment needs and integrity needs, an awareness of how complex we are in our parts, but most of all, our reliance on God's grace. That's the floor, right? That childlike trust, that absolute confidence that God loves us and that he's going to take care of us. Marriage is a vocation. So what is vocation? We'll go back to the Catholic Dictionary. Vocation is a call from God to a distinctive state of life to which the person can reach holiness. It's a call, a call from God to marriage. It's not just something that we decide, oh yeah, that's right, I'm going to just do this, or I just happen to like to be with you, so I want to be with you for the rest of my life. It's a call to a distinctive state of life. We are an entirely different place when we're married than when we're single. We have obligations, and it's a lifelong dedication. So what happens to undermine the commitment in Catholic marriages? A lot of things happen to undermine the commitment in Catholic marriages. There are so many ways that husbands and wives sabotage their relationships. They sabotage their marriages. How do they do that? Well, I'm reminded of Ernest Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises. There's this exchange between Bill and Mike. How did you go bankrupt? Bill asks Mike. Two ways, Mike says. Gradually, then suddenly. That's the same kind of thing that happens in Catholic marriages when there's not this focus on giving of oneself to live out the commitment. So let me give you some subtle ways of undermining your commitment to your spouse without you even realizing it. Some of these may be really surprising to you. The first one that I'm going to tell you is not praying for your spouse. If you're not praying for your spouse, you're omitting something really, really important. You have got to be praying for your spouse. And not just once in a while, but every day, multiple times per day, praying for your spouse. Second thing, not praying with your spouse. From Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them, right? Our Lord promises us that. And our nearest neighbor is our spouse. Now, there could be an exception to this. If your spouse is a militant atheist who just reacts terribly at the thought of being prayed with, well, then you might have to make some real serious adjustments to this. It might not be best to try to pray with your spouse in certain certain circumstances. But generally, Catholic spouses, we want to be working on praying together. And not just with the kids. There are so many Catholic families that pray a family rosary. That's excellent. But also pray just the husband and the wife together. Third, taking your spouse for granted. This is really, really common. Not really thinking about your spouse, not setting aside time to understand your spouse, and not just in conversation, right? But I'm going to argue that you need to be thinking about your spouse on your own time. We tend to fill up our time with distractions and not apply our intellect to trying to enter into our spouse's phenomenological world and understand things the way she does or understand things the way he does. 
We tend to go with our assumptions. We go with our own emotional reactions. And many of those have their origins way in the past, long before we met our spouses, back in childhood. We just go with those. We don't look at things critically. We don't consider alternatives. We don't listen with that third ear to really hear what our spouse is telling us, to really understand what's behind the surface of the words. Not helping your spouse, not pitching in in the ways that you can to help your spouse. Right? I've heard husbands say proudly, I've never changed a diaper in my life. Right? As though they're proud of it. They are proud of it. Like I'm thinking, oh, the poor wife. Because there probably were a lot of times where she really could have used her husband pitching in. Giving your spouse low quality time when you are exhausted because you've got other priorities, other attachments, other things that take up your high quality time, right? Distance, a lack of investment. This was an issue in in my marriage, right? I would come home, long clinical day. I was learning the profession. It was stressful to take on clients. I felt spent and I didn't want to hear about the difficulties with the kids, right? Well, I needed to be able to carve out some time. One of the things, one of the solutions that Pam and I found was to spend time on Sunday mornings. Sometimes we spend a couple hours early on Sunday mornings just being together. We need that high quality time. And that should be time on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, and a yearly basis. I recommend that couples spend time together every day and then more time together, a longer period of time together every week might be a date night, something like that, time every month, and then time every year. What other ways do we undermine our commitment? Well, that's being wedded to something else like professional work. People that work in ministry or for the church in some way often can be really drawn into this because they can see how important, in quotes, their work seems to be, and they can wind up neglecting their spouse, which means they're neglecting their vocation. The vocation to marriage, that's your primary focus. If you are a married man and a married woman, I don't care what else you're doing. You need to be focused on what's happening in that marriage, what's happening in your family life. Let's get into some other things that are nasty, right? Secret relationships, getting a little flirty with the waitress in the restaurant, justifying it as being friendly or social, spending too much time with that coworker that you're, you know, kind of attracted to. Texting, getting back in touch with uh, somebody that you dated back in college or in high school. You found the person on on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on classmates.com or something like that. You're just oh, curious about whatever happened to her, whatever happened to him, and you start reconnecting. Secret relationships. There is a way that you can check this out if it's a problem. Would you do the same thing? Would you act the same way? Would you text the same things? Would you email the same way if your wife or your husband was watching what you were doing? Here's another one. Complaining about your spouse to other people or comparing your spouse unfavorably to other spouses. Now, there is an exemption here if you're in therapy or if you're in spiritual direction or if you're in confession or something like that because there's obviously a reason why you might have to give enough context and some of that might be critical towards your spouse. I'm talking about things that are kind of gratuitous, things that are kind of gossipy or things that are just unnecessary as far as criticism of your spouse. Hanging out with your friends or associates more than your spouse, that's going to undermine your relationship, your marriage relationship. Undermining your spouse in front of others. And once in a while, there may be a correction that has to be made or something like that. But most of this stems from from taking the spouse for granted and sometimes from trying to score points with observers. So an author named Lachlan Brown talks about object affairs. These are affairs with an object. Could be a hobby, could be an idea, could be you know sports on TV. He also says it could be pornography. Obviously, pornography is a huge issue. It definitely undermines the relationship with the spouse. And we actually have a a course for husbands and wives at Souls and Hearts called Be True, Restoring Your Marriage After the Discovery of Pornography. Dr. Jerry did that course, designed it for husbands and wives to help walk you through the recovery and healing when pornography has been brought into the marriage in some way. 
Another thing that undermines Catholic marriage is emotional dishonesty. This is especially dangerous when it's used to justify actions, the keeping of secrets, the telling of white lies, hiding those emails or text messages or voicemails. This is called micro-cheating by Lachlan Brown. Befriending and associating with those who who undermine your marriage. Taking in that negativity from people who aren't supportive of your marriage, who actively want to undermine it. This sometimes can happen in families of origin, right? The husband's family doesn't think that the wife was ever a good fit, has always been against her, has always tried to turn the husband against the wife, something like that. That can happen in these families of origin. Here's another thing that really undermines the marriages. Debating the commitment and the vows. That's one of the most corrosive things that can happen. Was I ever really married? I mean, did I really know what I was getting into? Do I have grounds for an annulment? Maybe, yeah. You know, and sort of, maybe I'll stay, maybe I'll go. Because when you start debating the commitment, you, you're you not going to invest in the relationship. You've got one foot on the dock, one foot in the boat. It's not going to be a stable situation. Another thing that undermines the commitment to the relationship is and now we're getting more into the sexual realm, is fantasies of sleeping with somebody else. Sometimes sex therapists or just regular therapists will do this in order to, quote, spice up the sexual relationship, to have you imagine or to suggest that you imagine having that sexual intimacy with somebody else, somebody that you find more attractive or somebody that you find more exciting. That is clearly committing adultery in your heart. And it's going to have a very negative impact on your relationship with your spouse. So we need to have this full-hearted commitment, all of our body, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, right, committed to our spouses. A lot of times when people come to therapy, they come very late in the process. The marriage is already on the rocks. Sometimes the divorce has already been chosen, Right, We might be doing some window dressing here. We might be doing it for the optics to reassure Aunt Marine that we're doing everything that we can because she's really concerned about us. Or sometimes people are dealing with the aftermath. They want to know how to break it to the kids and how to try to make the divorce less messy or less painful. If we get conditional in our commitments, our commitments will eventually erode and they might fail altogether. What do I mean by conditional commitments? It means, well, I'll be faithful to her if she stops doing this. She can't treat me this way or I'm just not going to be faithful to her. Or he really needs to spend less than 55 hours a week at work or I'm not going to do X and Y and Z. These are conditional commitments. They are, they, there is no part of a conditional commitment in the marriage vow. As Catholic married men and women, we are really swimming upstream in our culture. It is very countercultural to live out a Catholic sacramental marriage in this day and age. The Catholic view of marriage is not supported by our current cultural norms. So let's, let's talk about no-fault divorce. What is no-fault divorce? All the states in the union have no-fault divorce. And so this is a definition from law.com. No-fault divorce is a divorce in which neither spouse is required to prove fault or marital misconduct on the part of the other. To obtain a divorce, a spouse must merely assert incompatibility or irreconcilable differences, meaning that the marriage has irretrievably broken down. This means that there is no defense to a divorce petition, so a spouse cannot threaten to fight a divorce. There is no derogatory testimony, and marital misconduct cannot be used to achieve a division of property favorable to the, quote, innocent, end quote, spouse. All right, so basically... All you have to do is say, we have irreconcilable differences. And they'll be like, okay, you can have a divorce. It didn't used to be that way. The first modern state to implement no-fault divorce was Russia in December 1917 during the Bolshevik Revolution. That started in October, just a couple of months before. And the revolutionary state, the atheistic revolutionary state, wanted to take control of marriage from the Orthodox Church in Russia 
and to grant it to the state because the revolutionaries considered marriage to be a bourgeois institution. So jumping ahead, 1969, California, the first state to bring in no-fault divorce under Governor Ronald Reagan. The last state to implement it was New York in 2010, but it had been pretty gutted by the time it was formally brought in as no-fault divorce. Going back to the 16th century, Protestant denominations began redefining marriage. In the 16th century, Henry VIII wanted to put away his wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, because he had no male heir. He had no son. And so St. Thomas More was martyred for his defense of marriage, not yielding to King Henry VIII's demands for an oath of loyalty to the 1534 Act of Supremacy passed by English Parliament that declared Henry VIII the head of the Church of England. The whole reason Henry VIII did that, well, there were multiple reasons why he did that, but one of the primary reasons so that he could grant himself permission to marry again because the Pope had refused. And in our present day and age, almost all Protestant denominations have gone along with some version of divorce being permissible, divorce being acceptable in some way, shape, or form. There are a few denominations that that may still believe that valid marriages are forever, that valid marriages last until death, but most of them have capitulated. Most of them have said, look, you know, we understand, et cetera, et cetera, have taken on sort of the spirit of modernity when it comes to marriage, and there can be divorce and remarriage permitted. Marriage is not just a contract. It's not just a civil agreement. It's not just a legal formality. When it's just those things, there really are no vows. There's nothing permanent about a civil marriage. There's no commitment. There's no obligations that just can't be abandoned like that if somebody just wants out of the marriage. And this creates an environment where safety and security are lacking, both for the spouses and for the children. Well, let's go to the other end of the continuum. Let's, let's get out of what our current civil society says about marriages, that basically they can be dissolved very easily. What does our Lord say about it? Let's go to scripture. Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. So look to yourselves and do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's go to Luke 16, verses 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Basically, you hear the same thing in Mark 10, verses 1 to 12. Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds again gathered around him, and, as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What does Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote that commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. A lot of Protestants will look at Matthew 19.9, right? Because there seems to be an exception there, right? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery. Right, so there's this what's sometimes called an exception clause. The Greek word here is pornea. And it can be taken that if a husband or wife commits adultery, then there's permission to divorce. Then that nullifies a valid marriage and opens the door to divorce and remarriage. Well, 
I went to Curtis Mitch and Edward Sree's The Gospel of Matthew Commentary. This is in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. It's my go-to source for looking at these kinds of questions. And they have a whole discussion of this on page 241. And basically, there are three solutions to this question. The first is the patristic view, and that's what most of the church fathers coalesced around. And that proposal holds that the exception clause allows for divorce in the case of spousal infidelity, but does not include the freedom to remarry. So one could divorce, but there would be no remarriage, right? Because the marriage still endures, even if there is a civil divorce. And then there's a couple of other explanations for this, including consanguinity, which means that this is really about incestuous marriages, which weren't altogether uncommon back in the day. So there was an, a, a basically a defect of form in the marriage. The two people couldn't actually be uh, legally married or couldn't be sacramentally married because of how close they were in terms of their blood relationships. So what does the Catechism of the Catholic Church say about divorce. This is paragraph 2384. Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It claims to break the contract to which the spouses freely consented to live with each other until death. Paragraph 2385. Divorce is immoral also because it introduces disorder into the family and into society. The disorder brings grave harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents and often torn between them, and because of its contagious effect, which makes it truly a plague on society. I want to just focus in on this effect of divorce on children. If we go back to what our attachment needs are and what our integrity needs are, divorce can have an absolutely devastating effect on children and not just little children who are going through their most formative years, but also on children who are teenagers and adults. Sometimes parents will wait until their kids are in high school before divorcing. They say, well, let's not divorce when they're small. Let's divorce when they're, little, when they're older, when they can understand it better and they can handle it better. I have had adult clients who are really rocked by their parents' divorces after 25 years of marriage or 30 years of marriage. You know, our Lord emphasized the importance of marriage when he opened his public ministry at a wedding, changing water into wine in Cana. You know, we need to be looking at our obligations first and our rights far less. Right? A lot of times in our culture, we're so focused on what our rights are that we're not looking at our responsibilities. We sort of start with the rights and we kind of neglect the responsibilities. I'm reminded of John F. Kennedy's inaugural address on January 20th, 1961, when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Imagine a politician saying that now, right? That personal responsibility, obligations before rights, obligations before entitlements, right? That kind of thing. We need to live out our vows every day. Now, that includes if we happen to be separated or civilly divorced, and maybe if we have no contact. I understand there are some really difficult situations, and the church recognizes those. I'll talk about those in a little bit. Nevertheless, even for the spouse that has been abandoned, for example, or a spouse who had to take the children because the other spouse was abusive, right, and separate from, from the spouse, the marriage is still a great source of grace if you live it out. We need to be asking ourselves, what does it mean to love our spouses in this moment? What does it mean for me to love my spouse in this moment, in this situation? It may mean to pray for them, to offer up sacrifices. It may mean no contact, sometimes for years, right, in extreme situations, we still are bound by our marriage vows. It's not because the spouse did something horrible that now we get a get out of marriage free card or something like that. It, that's not how it works. So it's really helpful to understand why parts of a husband or parts of a wife might want a separation or a divorce. 
right? Most efforts toward breaking or violating the marriage commitment are driven by our parts. And what are parts? Parts are the separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own unique prominent emotions, body sensations, intentions, typical thoughts and beliefs, desires, attitudes, impulses, their interpersonal styles, and their worldview. I argue that most of the efforts toward breaking or violating the marriage commitment are driven by parts that are not well connected with the self that are heavily influenced by the passions. Not all of the person may be undermining the marriage commitment. Just parts of the person may be undermining the marriage commitment. Parts have a partial vision. They don't have a complete picture. And they're seeking some good. For example, like companionship, right? Just wanting to be together with somebody and not seeing what that might develop into, right? The slippery slope that they might be on. A desire to find happiness, a desire for self-protection, also against hurt. Some parts are like, hey, you know, I'm out of here. I can't take this from my spouse anymore. I don't want to be attacked. I don't want to be activated. This isn't safe. We need to leave. That may be the solution that a part with limited resources may feel forced into. All right, so there's a list of given reasons for divorces, incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, emotional reasons. Uh, We fell out of love. We're no longer soulmates. We're no longer sexually or romantically attracted to each other. It's not fun anymore. I'm just not feeling it anymore. There's disagreements about money or finances or debt. We grew apart. We're each making our own way. We have different values, different priorities in life. We're just kind of like roommates. A lot of times affairs grow to the point where there's actual physical adultery, sexual infidelity, poor conflict resolution. I've also heard things like, he's just not nice to me, or she's cold and distant, so I don't want to be married to her anymore. Sometimes there's problems with the larger families, problems with the in-laws, It can be a fantasy that the marriage was going to solve things or heal things that it didn't do. And sometimes you get the, a good God would not want me to be in this unhappy marriage, right? A good God would allow me to leave. That's what he would want from me. Or sometimes you get the mystical aspects of this. It came to me in prayer that I needed to divorce my spouse. You can see that sometimes people get this kind of mystical about this and somehow they get messages or think they get messages in prayer that violate God's commands. So, all right, we talked a little bit about this before, acknowledging the need for separation sometimes. There have been a few times over the years where I've actually recommended that Catholic spouses separate. It's not very common, but this is provided for in our catechism, paragraph 2383, the separation of spouses while maintaining the marriage bond, can be legitimate in certain cases provided for by canon law. All right, so, but the critical thing is, while maintaining the marriage bond, it doesn't mean that the marriage bond was dissolved. Remember, it's indissoluble. That means no human power can dissolve it. Let's just take a quick look at canons 1151 to 1154. Detail some of the reasons why separation might be justified. So, Unrepentant adultery, ongoing adultery, if that's happening, that can be grounds. If there's a serious danger of spirit or body, right? So there's the risk of spiritual violence or bodily harm to the other spouse or to the children. So like domestic abuse, that's a grounds for separation. But there's an emphasis in these canons that this should be carefully discerned and also be given ecclesiastical approval, that is approval from the church. There's also the possibility of civil divorce. For example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2383, if civil divorce remains the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of the children, or the protection of inheritance, it can be tolerated and does not constitute a moral offense. So there even can be a civil divorce. There can't be a remarriage, but there can even be a civil divorce in certain instances if that's necessary to protect the integrity of the remaining family life. Well, what about annulments, right? What about annulments? Isn't that a Catholic form of divorce? Absolutely not. In the Catholic Church, a declaration of nullity which is commonly referred to as an annulment. Sometimes it's called a decree of nullity. That's a judgment on the part of an ecclesiastical tribunal. 
And what that tribunal found was that the marriage was never contracted, that it never happened. Ordination of that marriage was invalidly conferred. There was some sort of defect in the ceremony or something like that. So, so that when there's a decree of nullity, it's not saying that the marriage no longer exists. It's saying that the marriage never existed in the first place. That's a finding from an ecclesiastical court, essentially, from an ecclesiastical tribunal. So there isn't such a thing as a Catholic divorce. Sometimes people look to this as a way to say, all right, I need a do-over. Let's, after the civil divorce, let's see if we can get an annulment so that we're free to marry again. And sometimes they invoke Canon 1095, which is all about the reasons why somebody may be incapable of validly contracting marriage because they lack the sufficient use of reason, because they suffer from a grave defect of discretion of judgment, about the essential matrimonial rights and the duties mutually to be handed over and accepted, or they're not able to assume the essential obligations of marriage because of some psychological factor. I think the way that Canon 1095 is written is a very low bar. In other words, you have to be really impaired to not meet the criteria for understanding what a valid Christian marriage is, what the duties and rights of marriage are, what the obligations are entailed. You don't have to have anything like a perfect understanding. Nobody going into marriage does. But that bar for an adequate understanding, the way that I interpret this canon, is actually really low. The bar is low. Most people, if you're not suffering from some grave disability, right, if you are able to operate and function in society, if you can sign contracts, if you can be responsible for your day-to-day life and so forth, that is enough. I believe that this canon 1095 is routinely abused. I've heard stories about, well, you know, I have major depression at the time. And so, you know, I wasn't able to validly contract marriage or, oh, a personality disorder. So therefore, you know, my spouse wasn't able to validly contract marriage. No, 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 no. And there's a real problem, even if you get a declaration of nullity, right? It could be wrong, right? That's, those are not infallible. In fact, the Roman Rota exists in, in Vatican City, and that's like the Supreme Court when it comes to reviewing the cases from the diocesan tribunals. And a lot of times the Roman Rota will overturn the local diocesan determination of nullity. So these are not infallible findings, And even if so, if you do get a decree of nullity, but you still really are married because the degree of nullity was was incorrect and you try to marry again, you're attempting bigamy and you're not going to have the graces that come sacramentally in that marriage. There's a reality here about marriage. It's not just what we want it to be. It's not just what we hope it is. It's not just what we desire it to be. There's an objective reality that happens with this marriage. Remember how I described the parts of us, right? The parts of us are separate, independently operating personalities like within us. They're modes of operating, each with its own unique, prominent emotions, body sensations, intentions, with typical thoughts and desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style and worldview. And our parts are really impacted by our passions, by our emotions. Parts have very different experiences of our spouses, and they have very different attitudes toward our commitment to our marriage vows. A protector part of a husband who primarily experiences the critical part of the wife, you know, just feels like saying, I'm so tired of you. I'm tired of how you nag me all the time. That's what the husband's part is saying because it's experiencing primarily the critical part of the wife. That part may not focus that much on the marriage commitment, right? Or the wife's part that's seeking affection, who experiences a husband's part who wants to avoid intimacy, you know, might be asking the question, I don't know why you don't love me. I need someone who will love me. So parts, when they blend with us, they wind up driving the bus. We get carried away by our passions. Kind of like in the movie Inside Out, when the emotions would take over the control panel and everything would be seen through that particular emotions filter. The positions of parts toward the marriage commitment can vary wildly from part to part. Some parts may not consider the marriage commitment much at all. Exiles, firefighters, they may not be thinking about the marriage commitment much at all. 
Other parts may be heavily invested in the marriage in the hope that the spouse will meet needs. That could be through sexual contact. There can be parts that debate the commitment that really should be made to the spouse. And if parts are not being heard, they are very likely to enact something. They are very likely to bring up impulses to act out whatever they're experiencing. A lot of parts may hold positions that the spouse makes me miserable. I remember reading 30 years ago, Life's Little Instruction Book by H. Jackson Brown. And there was one little maxim in there that I've remembered for 30 years. Now, I tried to remember it and write it down. And I wrote it down and then I looked it up because you can look up everything on Google these days. I wrote down this little maxim as choose your spouse wisely because 90% of your happiness will come from your spouse. The actual quote is, choose your life's mate carefully. From this one decision will come 90% of all your happiness or misery. Now, that's what it actually says. And this is, I think, kind of pessimistic. And it doesn't reflect reality. The spouse doesn't have the power to deprive you of peace, well-being, or joy. That's something that we need to be getting from a deeper source. It's really helpful to understand that our security, our needs are met primarily by God and by Mary. Father needs by God the Father, mother needs by Mary. Affection, nurturance, love. This is what we should be getting from a personal relationship with God. It's really helpful though to understand why parts of us might want a separation or divorce. Sometimes we want to stuff those parts away. We don't want to listen to them. We don't want to give them any kind of voice. And that's when you can get the revenge of the repressed. The revenge of the repressed is if those things are not acknowledged, if they're not heard, if they're not taken seriously, if they're not considered, you can wind up with behavioral enactments, acting out, right? Putting these things into behaviors rather than putting them into words, right? If the words are not a, a tolerated, if we're not willing to entertain these kinds of things within us. If we blend with our parts, we will lose perspective, we'll be blinded by our passions. And so it's really important for us to be recollected. It's really important for us to have this interior integration. That's the whole point of this podcast, interior integration for Catholics, is so that we don't suppress, repress, or deny these things, that we do take them seriously, and that we do work with these parts of us or these modes of operating to resolve the intensity so that we don't act out in some kind of precipitous way if a part takes us over and blends with us. Most of all, we've got to have a providential worldview. I'm going to keep coming back to this. Ultimately, all spouses will fail in one way or another. Ultimately, your spouse will fail you in some way or another, and you will fail your spouse in some way or another. The failures of our spouses are gifts. They're opportunities for us to look to God to meet our needs, to look to our mother Mary to meet our needs, to find out what kinds of expectations we have that are unrealistic, that don't match who our spouse really is. God is supposed to provide for our attachment needs. God is supposed to provide for our integrity needs. What would it be like if we really relied on God's love in our marriages rather than our spouse's love? What would it be like if we had that childlike trust, if we had that complete abandonment? Would we be so unhappy in our marriages? Would we be so irritated with our spouses? Would things look dark when there's conflict in our marriages? Often there is so little trust between the spouses and there's so much dissatisfaction because spouses are not meeting the deep needs for affection, nurturance, and love. We covered this in episode 57 these unmet needs and these expectations that are unrealistic that our spouses should somehow make up for the things that only God can do. All right, so I want to tell you a little bit about the relaunch of the Resilient Catholics community and get into a little bit more of the details. You can go to our website, our landing page, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC, stands for Resilient Catholics Community, and find out a lot more. But if you're interested in that community, we're focusing on human formation. We're going to start 
with what I call the initial measures kit. We're actually gonna send out some instruments, some measures, pencil and paper that you fill out, right? For us to really get an understanding of where your baseline is on resiliency. Resiliency in the secular realm, in the natural realm, resiliency in the spiritual realm. We're also gonna look at where you are in terms of different kinds of levels of symptoms and where you are in some of your daily practices. And from that, we're gonna form an individualized human formation plan. And that's what we use to kind of set up like what you're to be doing kind of day to day and from week to week. One of the things that we'll be doing is matching up people to be companions on this journey. You'll check in with your companion on a daily basis and there'll be sets of companions that come together in these circles that do meet weekly to talk about how things are going in the realm of human formation. So there's a lot of relationality. There's a lot of connection in the Resilient Catholics community that's gonna be starting. We're gonna be reopening the community on June 1st and we'll be taking registrations all through the month of June and then we're gonna close the community on June 30th. Right. Our programming starts ramping up in June as folks start coming in in the new cohort. And then we plan to open the community every six months. So the community will be open in December again in 2021. And every six months, we're bringing in those cohorts. Uh, I got three calls from the conversation hour that we had last week. That was great. I'm going to do another conversation hour. We're going to change the time a little bit. Wednesday, April 28th, 5.15 p.m. to 6.15 p.m. Eastern Time. I will be by my cell phone, 317-567-9594. Just call. It's conversation hour. No texts. We're going to have actual, real, personal conversation. You want to talk to me? That's a great time to do it. You happen to drop the voicemail because I'm on another call? Leave a message. I'll call you back. All right. And so with that, I'll just make a note that for members of the Resilient Catholics community, your premium podcast, number 64A, will be about parts concerns about marriage. Could be your marriage or could be other marriages. And for those of you in the, in the interior therapist community, we're going to have a special premium podcast on working with clients' parts around commitment with a special focus on those diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. All right, so with that, we're going to wrap it. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.